I do appreciate musicians that can roll with the punches, so that was great. Wow, we are lopsided tonight. This is un unusual. You, you never know on Mother's Day and Father's Day what kind of turnout we'll have and, and things like that. This may be the first time I can remember, though, where Father's Day has a smaller return than Mother's Day. It's usually Father's Day we get people back because, yeah, you know, fathers, they're, they're good. They, they have their thing. Mothers, we have to gather around. It seems like we flip things over this, this time. Hopefully we recognize we're here because we get to gather around what our Lord has done in his word, and that's even more glorious. So, so we are looking forward to opening the word together tonight. We are going to continue the series that we've been slowly working our way through the book of Genesis, through the, the section specifically that deals with Isaac. And even though most of the time we've been in this section, Jacob is front and center, Moses frames it so that Isaac is the, the boundaries. It's the framework. We have Isaac's beginning, the, the, the record of Isaac's generation, and then we'll end this ultimately with Isaac's death. But most of the chapters deal with Jacob. As we return to our series this evening, I will remind us that we're catching up with Jacob. Now he's on his way home. He spent 20 years outside the, the promised land, the, the land that was promised by God to Abraham. Then the promises were passed to Isaac, and we've seen them passed to Jacob. He spent 20 years outside that, that land of promise. He, he spent those years in refuge uh, with his uncle Laban because his twin brother Esau wanted to kill him. Of course, Jacob did not help the situation. He kind of enabled some of that, that um, tension that came in the family. But now after 20 years, Jacob is returning to Canaan. That's where we left him. Of course, we should also remember that Jacob did learn in, in the previous chapter from where we're picking up tonight that his brother Esau, the one that 20 years before wanted to kill him, Esau is on his way with 400 men. Jacob is coming back to the land. He's bringing his family. He's bringing all of the flocks and, and riches, the, the possessions that God has given him over that 20 years. But he's been told Esau's on his way. And Esau's coming with 400 men. Jacob feared the worst. He, he assumed his brother was coming now to basically put an end to his life after waiting 20 years for an opportunity to do that. He's been biding his time just waiting for Jacob to return. And if you recall, Jacob immediately moved into action. He, he was working on a plan that he might put in motion that would appease his brother. He, he designed this plan that, that involved gifts and flattery for his brother to try and appease him. And, and while working on the details of that plan, Jacob did ask God to deliver him from Esau. But it was really more of a request for God to help Jacob with his efforts than, than we would call a cry of faith in God's sovereign control. Jacob's learned a lot about God in the 20 years, but he's still struggling in this area to, to just trust God to be faithful to the promises God is, has given him. So the request for God's deliverance was more of a request for God to, to bolster these great plans that Jacob came up with than, than expression of trust in God's plans. Now, during the 20 years in Paddan Aran, where Jacob had lived with his uncle Laban, Jacob has experienced, as I said, a, a lot of changes. There's been significant external changes. Jacob has now married Rachel and Leah, Laban's two daughters. He has those wives. And then he also has married their maids, Bilhah and Zilpah. He has seven sons. He has a daughter, 
He's accumulated, as I already mentioned, great wealth. He possesses flocks and herds and servants. Outwardly, Jacob is a very different man from the man who fled with only basically his, his clothing on his back when he, he fled. Inwardly, there's been some transformation as well. When he fled 20 years earlier, on his way just before he left the land, the, Jake God revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel while he was in the promised land. And, and from that moment on, Jacob has been a God worshiper over these 20 years, a true worshiper of God. And we've seen flashes of recognition that, that God is with Jacob, fulfilling these promises that, that God himself had passed along to Jacob. Again, Abraham, then to Isaac then to Jacob. God's been fulfilling those promises over the years. But more times than not, we've seen Jacob depend on his own wits more than he depends on God. That was particularly the case in the first part of chapter 32, as I mentioned, where he came up with his elaborate plan to appease his brother Esau. Jacob arrived, you remember, here at the edge of Canaan. He's almost back in the promised land. He's just on the edge and he made a camp, a place, where he saw the angels of God. He had a visible reminder that God is interacting with his world. God is there, moving back and forth with his angels, interacting with this place. And yet, that vision of these angels interacting with earth was not enough to completely change Jacob. So in the final verses of the chapter, the, the section that, that we considered the last time we looked at this book, over a month ago, Jacob finally had a personal encounter with God. Jacob, for some reason, had totally isolated himself on one side of the river. He'd sent all of his possessions across this small stream, the, the Jadok, Jabbok River. He had sent his family across, and Jacob himself was alone, and this man came and rustled him. The man, if you recall, was the angel of the Lord. It was, was a pre-incarnate Christ showing up there, wrestling with Jacob. And, and through that encounter... Jacob was taught in, in the most physical way you could possibly be taught that he had to hold on to God. No matter what, he had to hold on to God. The, the final result of that encounter with Jacob was given a new name. Jacob's been given the name Israel. He, he himself recognized that he's seen God face to face and survived. That the fact that he was alive if the sun rose was, was a demonstration that, that God has chosen to bless him. And then Jacob crossed the Jabbok River. He, he crossed really as a changed man, having encountered God, having received this new name. This is the man that we're encountering as we pick up Moses' account here of his return to Canaan this evening. Jacob has met God. Jacob has wrestled with God. Jacob has survived. With that behind him, is he ready now to meet his brother Esau? We would certainly think so, wouldn't we? I mean, you've met God. Me and your brother shouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Still, we, we should recognize from probably our own personal experience that, that change, especially spiritual change, is seldom as clean or smooth as we would like it to be. You know how it is. Two steps forward, one and a half steps back, something like that, it seems like. Sometimes it seems like two and a half steps back. It's never as smooth as we want going forward. Well, let's rejoin Jacob at the beginning of verse 33. In the first four verses, Jacob meets Esau. Jacob knew from the early reports, as I said, that Esau's coming, and 
How many men is he bringing? 400 men. So Jacob has put this plan in motion. He sent waves of animals and servants ahead of him in an attempt to placate the anger and bitterness that he assumes Esau is harboring after these 20 years. Jacob has begged God to deliver him from Esau's wrath. Jacob's done everything he can think of to prepare for this encounter. Yet, as he lifts his eyes and he sees Esau's company there in the distance, it seems as if Jacob's confidence again reflects less than stellar faith. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The first thing Jacob does here is he sees Esau as he divides his family up once again. He divides up his wives and their children, and then he lines them up in order of importance, at least in his eyes. Surely it was clear to the family that this is what Jacob was doing, that the maids and their children are placed first. They would be the first to come to Esau's company that Jacob assumes is coming with hostile intents. They're in the position of most risk. Then comes Leah and her children. Then comes Rachel and Joseph, the wife and son that's most precious in Jacob's eyes. Now, I'm not saying Jacob doesn't care at all about the, the family members in, in front, but obviously, in his mind, they're the most expendable. They're the ones that, if I have to put someone at risk, put them out front. Now, I'm just going to read a little imagination into text here. Surely that has to sting. If you're one of the, the children of the maids, or you're one of Leah's children, that's got to sting just a little bit. Remember, this is a family that's been marred by tension and divisions for 20 years now. They, they don't get along that well. Certainly, Jacob is not helping resolve all these complications in his family. When, when push comes to shove, when, when the risk in his eyes are real, he, he makes abundantly obvious where the strongest affections lie. By the way, did you notice when I read this that Moses mentions only one child by name. What child does he mention? Joseph. Moses is, is drawing our attention to Joseph. He, he's preparing us for the, the coming narratives here in, in Genesis where Joseph, as you all know, features a very prominent part. Moses also gives us some insight into the source of the jealousy that the brothers will hold towards Joseph. Jacob has an obvious and deeply held affection and preference for Joseph that, that far surpasses the, the concern he has for any of his other sons. Not something a father should do, especially as we're thinking here on Father's Day. This is not a model example of a father. Remember, this passage here, this is the morning immediately after his wrestling match with God. The sun has barely come up. He's had a sleepless night wrestling. His hip hurts. If he needs a reminder that he's wrestled with God, all he has to do is take one step, and that throbbing pain in his hip will remind him he spent the night wrestling with God. Inwardly, 
Jacob is a changed man, but that change has not fully worked itself out into his behavior yet. When, when, stress, when the stress comes, Jacob reverts to his old instincts, that the habits he's developed over 20 years. Now, one thing we do see different, at least this time, Jacob places himself ahead of all of his family. He puts himself into the place of greatest risk. He will be the first to face Esau, rather than hanging back with Rachel and Joseph. Jacob will take the, the greatest risk himself. The, the actual meeting now of the two brothers comes there in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, Jacob prostrates himself seven times on the ground before Esau. That, that's an action that, that was familiar in that era. It was a protocol that you would find in, in royal courts. It, it was a way of indicating subservience. The, the person would come before a king and bow seven times and, as symbolizing total subservience to, to one of higher station. Well, Jacob adopts that position before Esau. Surely it's a gesture, as I said, it's a familiar um, pattern in that day of familiar actions, surely that jester would not be lost on Esau, that, that Jacob was casting himself into that subservient role. Now, you may recall we discussed in the previous chapter that it really was misguided of Jacob to attempt to appease Esau through his own manipulations. Jacob could trust God to deliver him. Remember, God has promised to bless Jacob. God has promised that all these blessings that go to generations in the future will flow through Jacob. God has promised to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan in peace. When he left, God told him, I will bring you back. Jacob did not need to continually try to exert his own influence. Yet it seems as if he almost can't stop himself when, when the pressure's on. Instead of displaying confidence in God, Jacob abases himself before Esau, uh, attempting to appease what he presumes an angry, is an angry man. Well, Esau does not respond as a king. Esau responds as a joyous brother. He sees his twin brother for the first time in 20 years. They've been apart for, for a 20-year absence, and Esau runs forward and hugs Joseph. He falls on his neck, and he kisses him. Moses uses five verbs there in, in very quick succession in, in verse 4 to, to give us the sense of movement, the sense of, of rushing forward to clearly show that Esau gives his brother a really warm welcome. One thing that is interesting to note is that the last time Moses mentioned anything on the neck of Jacob was back in chapter 27. Chapter 27 is a key chapter in this course. If you remember, chapter 27 is the chapter of deception. It's the chapter when Jacob tricked his, brother, or tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. It's the chapter that was the final straw that is the reason Esau wanted to kill Jacob 20 years earlier. The last time anything was on the neck of, of Jacob was in verse 16 of that chapter when his mother, Rachel, put the skin of a young goat on Jacob's neck as part of that effort to deceive Isaac and steal that blessing. So this reference here of falling on Jacob's neck, using that word for neck, that, that's just one of several allusions that Moses makes in this chapter where he selects words to tie this chapter together with that chapter back in 27. He wants to see the connection of these event, events. Remember what happened in 27? 
look now. Moses is trying to make sure we keep that in mind as we're looking through that. So the neck is one word. There's, like I said, many allusions. I won't bring them all out. Uh, you'd have to spend time studying the chapters. But, but Moses wants to make sure that we keep these events that led to the rift between Jacob and Esau in mind as we go through this chapter where we see the rift resolved. So having at last come together, after 20 years, in, in verses 5 through 11, we finally come to Jacob reconciles with Esau. The reconciliation occurs. Look at verse 5. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and children. That would be, he would be Esau. Lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he, that's Jacob, said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I've met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from your hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. So Moses records here Jacob's family presenting themselves to Esau. Uh, once again, uh, we see Joseph is the only child mentioned by name. Still, it's really the dialogue between the two brothers that, that drives this section of the chapter. Moses has thrown Joseph in so that we, we keep him in our mind. He's being popped above all the other brothers, you know, kind of like a, a bobbin pops to surface in the water. Joseph keeps popping up. But the dialogue is driving things here. And one thing to note within the dialogue is how Jacob refers to himself and how Jacob refers to Esau. Jacob refers to himself as your servant there in verse 5. In, in verse 8, he calls Esau my lord. Again, this wording presents an inverse to what God had told Jacob as part of the blessing that God had given. God had told Jacob that Jacob would lord over his brother. Jacob's the one that will be lord. The brother will be the servant. Now, I don't think this means that, that Jacob, by switching these words around, by, by calling himself servant in Esau lord, I don't think it means that Jacob doubts that God will do what he has promised to do. Rather, I think it continues to show that Jacob doesn't think God can do things without his influence. And, and he probably hasn't even thought that through. If, he's probably like us. If, if a theological question was asked, is God able to do whatever he promises to do, Jacob's going to say yes. That's what we answer, right? It's asked in Sunday school, is God omnipotent? Yes, he is. Is, is God ha providentially control of everything? Yes, he is. We, we know the Sunday school answers, but then life comes along. And in life, when the situation comes up, we want to aid God just a little bit. I think that's what's going on here. Jacob wants to influence the situation as much as possible, tip things in his favor, make it easy for God to do what God has promised to do. So Jacob is using words that he thinks will appease Esau. He's using demeanor and actions that, that will placate what he still believes would be an angry man. Now look closely at verse 10. Do you see where Jacob tells Esau that I see your face as one sees the face of God? 
See that, that phrase there? Now look back at verse 30 in the previous chapter. There Jacob states, I have seen God face to face. In fact, in the case of seeing God face to face, the remarkable takeaway for Jacob is, yet my life is preserved. God says, Jacob says, I've seen God face to face and I've lived to tell about it. That's amazing. Let's remember, this is only a few hours before, at best. We're on the same morning. Very short time has passed between Jacob saying, I've seen God face to face and lived. And now I see, Esau, I see your face and it's like the face of God. Well, if Jacob lived through the experience of seeing God face to face, why would he fear seeing Esau face to face? It almost seems as if Jacob's missed the point of his nighttime experience. One thing that, that we can give Jacob for credit as we look at this dialogue is that he clearly attributes all of his obvious success. Jacob has great possessions, and Esau has seen all of his possessions now, seen the large family that Jacob has. We, get, we can give Jacob credit for at least acknowledging that God has graciously dealt with him. He gives God the credit. Jacob recognizes that he has what he has because God has given it to him. And he tells Esau that. Jacob did not earn these things through his own effort. God gave him all these possessions. It was a display of God's grace upon him. God's favor shining upon him. Grace, favor, they're one and the same. And, and if you look at the verses, those words, gracious and favor, come up frequently. Esau is being informed by Jacob, this is... What you see here is a display of God's favor shining upon me. Speaking of his possessions, that brings us to the, the matter of the extremely large gifts of animals that Jacob had assembled for Esau. Remember, there were 500 animals, or maybe you don't remember, but we were told then in the previous chapter, 500 animals, an extremely large gift that Jacob had prepared for his brother. It was designed to placate Esau's wrath. Well, clearly there's no wrath to placate. Esau is not an angry man. The, the animosity that, that Esau once harbored toward Jacob, that, that's evaporated over the years. Esau himself acknowledges that he has accumulated financial wealth in, in those 20 years, and he says, I, I don't need your gift to appease me, or I don't need your gift to enrich me. Esau has what he needs. Still, Jacob wants him to have the gift. But rather than the gift now being a means of reconciliation, Jacob recognizes that it serves as a token that God has reconciled them. The, the word that we have translated in verse 11, please take my gift. That, that word we have translated as gift. That is not the common word for gift. The, the common word is in verse 10. We have it translated there as my present. Take my present. That, that's the common word for a gift in Hebrew. In verse 11, the word that Jacob used is a much more loaded word. It's, it's not the common word. It, it's, a, 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 it's not the word that's usually used in, in this kind of a conversation. In fact, in this conversation, the word that Jacob uses in verse 11 would be a very loaded word. The, the King James Version, or the English Standard Version, they, they bring it out well by, by translating the the word differently in verse 11. Does anyone have that translation? See, see the word? How's it translated? What? 
Blessing is translated as blessing. Think back to chapter 27. What did Jacob steal from Esau? A blessing. A blessing. The word that's used consistently in chapter 27 for blessing is the word that Jacob uses here. Moses hasn't thrown that word out there in between. He's leaving that, and this is one of those key ties to help us see Jacob is bringing this sensitive topic up, saying, here's part of my blessing. Remember, Jacob stole the blessing through deceit, but now he's sharing it. God's gracious dealing was a large part of that blessing. If you remember what Isaac told Jacob, part of it was that God would bless him with wealth. What we need to understand is, is Jacob is not offering here to return the stolen blessing. He cannot do that. That would be impossible. What Jacob is expressing, though, is desire to share the fruit of the blessing. I, essentially, he's implying, I took the blessing from you. God has been faithful and blessed me. Let me share that with you. Jacob's expressing his desire to share the fruit of the blessing with Esau. As God is graciously blessed Jacob. God has faithfully blessed he, as he's promised, and Jacob now can share that with his brother because they've been reconciled to one another. That's why Jacob is urging Esau to take this portion of the blessing, and Esau does. It's a sign that we are reconciled in, in East, and Jacob is sharing what God has given him. Now let's continue reading as Jacob separates from Esau in verse 12. Verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is named Succoth. Frankly, I'm not sure what to make of this section. I'll just express it that way. I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, on the surface, it seems as if Jacob is falling back into his deceptive tendencies. It's like he's promising Esau to go to Seir, but then he goes to Succoth instead. That does fit Jacob's old pattern, but it doesn't seem fit with the personality we're just seeing here. At the same time, it doesn't seem likely that that to me, that Jacob would want to risk this glorious reconciliation he's just had with his brother by now immediately flipping around and lying to his brother. That, that doesn't compute in my mind. Plus, uh, according to Genesis chapter 36, verses 6 and 7, there we're told it's Esau who instigates the decision for the brothers to go separate ways. Esau says we have too much possessions to dwell together, so, so we go live apart. Commentators suggest that, that this verbal exchange may at least be, in, in some part, cultural, where I, I express something that I expect you to reject. And Esau is saying, let me go with you. And, and 
Jacob's expected reject, and Jacob says, I'll go with you, but Esau knows that's not the case. I, I don't know. Um, the bottom line is, I'm not sure. I lean toward, and I'm going to put that out there so that you can lean differently if you want. I lean towards thinking that, that this time there, there's nothing in Jacob's actions. I, I think what we have here, the brothers are separating with no hard feelings. And it's clear they are separating. Not only are they separating, they're, they're separating having reconciled. And from that fact, we, we can understand that that reconciliation for them does not require that they live together. They, they can peaceably live apart. It's okay to be reconciled with someone and not be best buds anymore. You know, they, they are reconciled to each other, but they can live separately. One other thing that is important to note is that Succoth here is within the promised land. In, in verse 17, it mentions that Jacob settles there at Succoth. From, from the coming verses, it's apparent that this is only a temporary residence, but, but significant is the fact that as Jacob temporarily stays here in this place, this arrival at, at Succoth puts him back inside the edge of the promised land. By, by contrast, Seir is outside the land of promise. Seir is what becomes the land of Edom. The Edomites, they, they descend from Esau, and Seir is outside the land that God is has promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. Succoth, if you look at a map, is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but, but it's back in the land. The, that means that the promises that God has made to Jacob at Bethel when he fled are coming true. Jacob has returned to the land. He's returned to the land in peace. He has peace with his brother Esau. He, he separated, if you remember, from Laban, his uncle, with a treaty of peace. Remember, there was some deception there, and Laban pursued him, but in the end, they made a treaty with one another that they would have peace between them. Well, now he's separating from Esau, in peace. So God has faithfully brought Jacob back to the land in peace. Now, after Jacob stays here at Succoth for an undetermined amount of time, he, he crosses the Jordan River, and he settles in the center of Canaan. Look at verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elhohi Israel. The main point in these final verses is that Jacob is in the land of Canaan. Shechem is on the western side of the Jordan River. What we'd consider the core of the land is directly north of Bethel. It's right in the middle of the promised land. So as promised 20 years earlier by God, God now has brought Jacob safely back into the land. And in response to God fulfilling that promise he's made, Jacob sets out to build an altar for worship. Jacob had promised that if God brought him back, he would worship God. So we should recall that, that when Jacob made that promise there at Bethel, as he was fleeing from his brother Esau, he, he promised, made a vow. It's actually verses 20 and 21 of, of Genesis 28. Jacob says, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. That, if you remember back in 
chapter 20, what was a promise to worship. Jacob had promised to, to worship God. Now he's doing that. He, he's constructing an altar here at Shechem as, as part of fulfilling that vow. What we should notice is that Jacob wants to ensure that this altar is truly an Israelite altar. Remember, Jacob's name now is Israel, even though I keep referring him to Jacob, so does Moses for the most part. He has the new name Israel. This is an Israelite altar. He wants to make sure that is an Israelite altar, so he purchases the land before he constructs the altar. He's ensuring that he and his descendants have a permanent claim to this place of worship. In fact, if we fast forward 400 years plus, this is the very place that when the Israelites finally returned to the land under Joshua, in Joshua 24, 32, we read that this is now where they buried Joseph's bones. The verse says, Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. This is Israelite land. He bought it. In 400 plus years later, the, the descendants still know this is our land. Jacob also names the altar he built there. He calls it El Elohi Israel. Literally, that means God, the God of Israel. But probably when you have a phrase like that in Hebrew, it's expressing something like the God of Israel is God. There's probably an implied uh, verb is. The God of Israel is God. We can probably understand the point that Jacob is making is that his God, the, the God of Israel, is the true God. He, he's a strong God. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's the God who brought Jacob back to the land, and he's brought him back in peace. He's demonstrated that he is this strong, true, living God. God has brought him back with all of these blessings, shown his faithfulness, his power, his might, and, and Jacob responds to that with worship. He sets up an altar here dedicated to God. With the end of the chapter here, we, we really draw close to this long cycle that we could call the Jacob-Esau cycle here in Genesis. It started out really from tension when they, before they were born, when they fought in, in their mother's womb, now to the reconciled. The conflict that's existed from the womb onward is, is resolved. It's existed, as I said at the beginning, in the larger context of the Isaac, Isaac section of, of the book, and the Isaac section is not quite complete, but the, the main arc of this section is finished here with the, the resolution of the tension between the two brothers. What is left for us tonight is to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this chapter? As we draw this session, section to a close, what can we left, learn from it? What is the life lesson for us? As always, there are a lot of ways we could express the, the main idea, the, the way I've chosen worded this e evening is this way. We are to worship God for his grace rather than attempt to assist him. We are to worship God for his grace rather than attempt to assist him. There, there's two aspects to the lesson, two sub-lessons, if, if you will hear the way I've worded it first. We are to worship God for his grace. That's our role. We are to worship God. God... We are to worship him for his grace. His grace is on obvious display here in the chapter. Jacob's referred to God's graciousness when he, he spoke as 
the evident wealth he now has. God has been gracious to him. All of the blessings are a result of that. All of the physical blessings as well as the spiritual blessings. They're, they're all God's undeserved faith. Jacob did not deserve any of the physical blessings he had, his children, his wealth. God chose them to, to, to become Jacob's as a means, really, of God demonstrating his faithfulness and goodness by fulfilling the promises he made to Jacob out of grace. God did not have to choose Jacob as the one to place his favor upon, but God did. So God's grace is on display here also in the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. God had changed both men before they met one another. We saw great detail about how God went about changing Jacob. We were just surprised to learn God's also changed Esau. Somehow over the 20 years, Esau's anger dissipated. God had arranged it so that they were both prepared for this moment when they met. This is grace at work. Jacob responded all of this display of God's grace with worship. The question that we need to ask ourselves, are we doing likewise? Are we recognizing that God's grace is just as evident in our lives? God is constantly pouring grace out to us. Today is Father's Day, and, and we celebrated with family, if we did at all, if we were able to celebrate with family, that's God's grace. We, we've gathered for church again this evening. We've gathered in safety. We've gathered in peace. That's God's grace. Not to mention the, the many physical blessings we've enjoyed. We probably all had a good meal this afternoon. I know I did. God's grace. Maybe we even threw in some dessert. God's grace. I had my Snickers bar that we handed out. God's grace. Clothing, houses, paychecks, air conditioning. The list goes on and on. God's grace, God's grace. The, the question is not whether we are experiencing God's grace. The question is, are we worshiping God because of his bountiful grace? We have the grace of salvation. We have saving grace for which we worship God, and, and we ought to, but we also have nearly endless common grace. Are we worshiping God for that as well? Are we finding ourselves all too often complaining that we want a little bit more grace of some kind rather than worshiping God for what he's given us? We are to worship God for his grace, undeserved favor. That's the first part of our lesson tonight. We are to worship God for his grace, but there's the second part too. Rather than attempt to assist him. Hopefully, we are emulating Jacob in the first part of the lesson to some level. We are worshiping God for his grace. Unfortunately, we probably emulate Jacob a little too much more than we should in the second part as well. We're not good at leaving things in God's hands. Yes, we, we trust God, but we also enjoy the fantasy that, that we exert some level of control over the situations as well. We, we, we have likely seen this trait in ourselves just as we saw it again in Jacob several times in the last couple chapters where Jacob just tried to keep adding in his own influence to the situation. We do the same. We try to assist God. Yet every time that, that we've seen Jacob try to help God, Scripture's made it clear that it was unnecessary. Jacob did not have to do what he's done. God's already handled the situation. 
why would we think it's any different for us? Why do we think we need to help God? Has God gotten tired of showing his grace since Jacob's day? Well, that long list of things that I began to give and we could keep adding to and adding to and adding to, adding to shows that God is not tired of giving grace to us. We experience bountiful grace. So it's not that God's gotten tired of showing grace to us. Has God got, become less comprehensive in showing grace now than he was in Jacob's day? Of course not. The, the problem really is that, that we do not want to fully depend on God's grace. We want to assist. We want that fantasy that somehow we are still involved. We are to worship God for his grace rather than assist him. You know, one of the areas in which we probably need to learn this lesson most fully is the same area where we see Jacob played out the, this evening, that area of, race, uh, of relationship reconciliation. How many of us have broken relationships with people? Do we trust that, that God's grace is sufficient to reconcile broken relationships? Or do we look and just say, it's impossible. It cannot be done. Are we willing to throw ourselves on, on God's grace expecting that, that he can mend our conflicts? Or do we think we have to somehow manipulate the situation to make things work out? Now, we don't have a direct promise from God that he'll mend a, a particular relationship. But we should certainly trust that God's grace is able. If you think about it, Jacob did not have a promise from God that he would mend his relationship with Esau. What Jacob had was a promise from God that he would bless him and sustain him. But there's many ways God could have done it. God graciously reconciled. And we should hope and trust that God might do the same for us. We should trust that his grace is able to reconcile any relationship that we have. And we should worship God for his grace. We're to worship God for his grace rather than attempt to assist him. That's the lesson that we just need to learn over and over, it seems, because it just keeps coming up over and over. We should worship God for his grace rather than attempt to assist him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time we've been able to spend looking at your word. I thank you for you allowing us now to trace the tension between Jacob and Esau all the way through these chapters and to see this final res reconciliation here this evening. I pray that it will encourage us to worship you more fully, to, to rejoice in your grace, and to trust you more completely. Father, you've given us so much. You've given us Christ, who has reconciled us through faith to you. So we know that in Christ all things are possible. Help us to believe that in the core of our being and to live it out in the external behavior of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.